For most of our, our history, America Catholics have viewed 1776 and 1787 favorably, the years of the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. Only recently have some Catholics criticized the founding for being too mired in the quicksand of liberalism to view with a positive inclination. This was the position, uh, this was not the position held by earlier Catholics. As I'll argue here, the leading Catholic of the founding generation, Archbishop John Carroll of Maryland, found much to be thankful for in America's independence from Great Britain and the implementation of the United States Constitution. He saw the events of the founding as providential and working to the advantage of true religion. Among the most notable evidence of God's divine providence was the fact that George Washington was present to see the young republic mature from adolescence to adulthood in its political institutions. Indeed, Carroll's most sustained reflection on the founding comes in his eulogies, his two eulogies uh, for Washington after his death. In these addresses, he holds that Washington represents the best of the founding's hope for a land of law, order, peace, prosperity, morality, and the free worship of God in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. This paper seeks to understand Carroll's praise of the founding by examining several of his public comments on the subject between the years of 1785 and 1800. In particular, I'll be looking at Carroll's Sermon of Gratitude for Independence of 1785, his defense of American Catholics in an essay published in the Gazette of the United States in 1789, his leadership in sending a letter on behalf of American Catholics congratulating John George Washington on his election as President of the United States, and finally, those two eulogies that I just mentioned uh, for Washington. The first came right after Washington's death in 1799, and the other on Wash the birthday right after Washington's death in February of 1800. These documents show a devout Catholic bishop defending his flock, in part by defending the laws that protect their freedom to freely practice the faith. But he also genuinely admires the principles of the American founding as being largely consistent with the teachings of the church. He denies that the founding is guided primarily by liberal or Protestant thought, but rather by natural principles accessible to all people of good sense. Before saying more about John Carroll, though, allow me to elaborate briefly on the position recent Catholics have taken regarding the American founding. Again, generally, since 1776, Catholics living in the United States have celebrated the American founding. In the late 1770s, they saw the immediate benefit of the revolution that, that severed ties with Great Britain, the benefits of this to Catholics whose practice had been unjustly suppressed by English law. In the 1780s, they enjoyed the newfound freedoms to practice and participate in public life, including the opportunity to shape state and even federal written constitutions. They held political office and other stations of influence. As time went on, their numbers grew. They built colleges, hospitals, businesses. They helped to build great cities like Boston, New York, and Chicago. They enjoyed the constitutional protection to practice their faith. And though violence against Catholics has not been avoided entirely, it has long been more the exception rather than the rule. Catholics, in other words, have long sung America's songs, fought in her wars, paid her taxes, benefited from the protection of her laws, and have therefore accordingly paid tribute to her as patriotic citizens 
observing the celebrations of Independence Day and other secular holidays. <clears throat> in turn, for better or for worse, maybe it's for the worse, non-Catholics in America have adopted some parts of the Catholic liturgical calendar as part of their own lives, thinking of St. Patrick's Day or Mardi Gras, to say nothing of Christmas and Easter. The gains Catholics have made in America over the past 200, uh, two and a half centuries are really staggering when you consider the fact it was illegal to be Catholic, to practice Catholicism up until the revolution. However much American Catholics have praised the founding, some distance has always been kept from the more radically liberal elements that may have helped give shape to our nationhood. Pope Leo XIII's uh, Longinque Oceani, while careful to observe the many virtues of America, reminded Catholics to be cautious of the liberty made available to them. Marriage laws, cultural individualism, and the strict separation of church and state all gave the pontiff cause for concern. With a gentle hand, he cautioned American Catholics to stand firmly with the unity of the church and her tradition. He emphasized his point to James Cardinal Gibbons in Testum Benevolentiae Nostre, explaining that if anybody wishes to be considered a real Catholic, he ought to be able to say from his heart the selfsame words which Jerome addressed to Pope uh, Damasus, I acknowledge, I acknowledge no other leader than Christ and bound in fellowship with your holiness, the Pope, that is, with the chair of Peter. Cardinal Gibbons and other American bishops assured the Pope that they were careful not to depart from Catholic teaching or the unity of the church. Furthermore, they assured him that the prospects for the growth of the faith was strong in America and that the future of a thriving church was highly likely in the new world. Gibbons' sentiments were expressed by the Third Plenary Council of Baltimore, with cons uh, which considered the establishment of our country's independence, the shaping of its liberties and laws as a work of special providence, its framers built wiser than they knew. The Almighty's hand guided them. They went on to say that if ever the glorious fabric is subverted or impaired, it will be by men forgetting of the sacrifices of the heroes that reared it, the virtues that cemented it, and the principles on which it rests. We're ready to sacrifice principle and virtue to the interests of self or party. The council then prayed, may these United States flourish in pure and undefiled religion, immorality, peace, union, liberty, in the enjoyment of their excellent constitution, as long as respect, honor, and veneration shall gather around the name of Washington. That is, while there shall be any surviving record of human events. Many American Catholics continued to share Cardinal Gibbons' view that the prospect for the church in America remains strong, despite the challenges that the faithful face in, increasing, in, an, in an increasingly secular culture. But a growing number of Catholics, particularly among intellectuals, assert that the faithful should not feel comfortable in the United States, that America is hostile to Catholicism, and that America has always been anti-Catholic, if unconsciously so, because America was founded upon liberal principles that the church has always recognized as pernicious. The problem with the critics' view is that the American founding is far more complicated than they're willing to recognize. Were there anti-Catholics at the time of the American founding? Yes. But most inherited their prejudices from English mores rather than developed it by reading Locke. Was liberalism in the air of the founding? Yes, but not all of it was radical, radical liberalism, 
and it had to compete with other ideas and intellectual habits for a place at the founding table. Protestantism, English legal practice, friendly critics of the Enlightenment, such as Montesquieu, and even some Catholic thinkers like Bellarmine and Suarez, whose works were read and studied by American Catholics who went abroad for their education. People like Charles and Daniel and John Carroll. Right? All of these ideas were in the air and floating around. These were the most prominent Catholics of the time, this, these Carroll clan, Char Charles Carroll, Daniel Carroll, and John Carroll. Um, and there were others too, like Thomas Fitzsimmons of Pennsylvania, who were all well-educated, who read the same things that their American peers were reading, but also were uh, familiar with Catholic theology and Catholic philosophers. Let me say more now about John Carroll. No one did more in the 1770s through the first decade and a half of the 19th century to think through the relationship of the American regime and Catholic thought and practice than did John Carroll. The first Catholic bishop in the first see to be established in a non-confessional state since the Reformation, Carroll was well respected by several of the leading founders and magisterial authorities in Rome. By special arrangement, Carroll was allowed to be elected by the clergy of America perhaps because there was little doubt who would be chosen. It was a happy coincidence or providence that John Carroll was the pre preferred prelate of Rome, American priests, and even political leaders like ben Benjamin Franklin, who was in France uh, at the time and was asked by the Vatican for advice on who should be chosen. Officially, the position was, America has no position on who Rome should choose as the bishop. Privately, Franklin recommended Carroll. Carroll was born in Maryland, July, January 8, 1735. He left Maryland as a young teenager to study at the English Jesuit College at St. Omer in France. He made the voyage with his cousin Charles and would later be joined by his younger brother Daniel. He entered the Jesuit order in 1753 and was ordained a priest in 1761. For a brief period, he taught at St. Omer's after, a, after it relocated to England. He returned to Maryland in 1769, the year after the suppression of the Jesuits, and just in time to see the escalation of tensions between the English colonies and the British Parliament, who insisted on various revenue taxes to pay for debts and expenses related to the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War. When independence was declared, John Carroll accepted an invitation to join Benjamin Franklin, his cousin Charles, and Samuel Chase to win the goodwill of the Canadians to the American cause, and perhaps even a joint effort at eradicating the British from North America. The effort was unsuccessful, but it gave people like Franklin the chance to better know a Jesuit priest, whom he, Franklin, came to deeply respect. After the war, Carroll was appointed prefect apostolic of the church in the 13 new states. Five years later, in 1789, just about the time of the new U.S. Constitution, Carroll was named bishop in accordance with the choice of the clergy. He held the position for 25 years in the Sea of Baltimore. His influence is hard to overestimate. He oversaw the growth of the church in the New Republic, founded Georgetown University, called the first diocesan synod, and became archbishop when four additional sees were created in 1808. He died in the year 1815. Not only did Bishop Carroll live through the American founding, he saw it firsthand and was on intimate terms with many of the principal authorities who helped to fashion it. 
His cousin signed the Declaration of Independence, and his brother took part in the Constitutional Convention, and then helped James Madison pass the Bill of Rights in the first Congress, including, and perhaps especially, the First Amendment, which uh, uh, disallows or prohibits Congress from passing any law establishing a religion and prohibiting the free exercise of religion. He corresponded with Franklin, Washington, and many others. At the same time, Carroll was actively building the church in, the new, in this new nation. His conversations with Rome were many. He was in a better position than most to compare the effects of the American Revolution on the faithful to what was happening to the church due to the French Revolution. Like many after him, like Alexis de Tocqueville, Arrestus Brownson, Cardinal Gibbons, John Courtney Murray, Carroll understood that America provided fertile ground for the growth of Catholic life, if it were well tended. Part of tending the soil involves a proper Catholic appreciation for the founding. Carroll's refrain when describing the political events of the 1770s and 1780s is to give thanks to God's providence for the bountiful blessings that brought forth a new nation no longer legally hostile to the church. Consider, for instance, his Sermon of Gratitude for Independence, which he gave in 1785. He began by reminding his congregation of the obstacles that once prevented their free worship of God. Two more minutes, okay. Um, in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Prior to the Revolution, practicing the Catholic faith was illegal in nearly all of the English colonies. Providence has brought about a better situation. The holy, this is what Carroll said. The Holy Ghost has so worked upon and tutored the minds of men that now, agreeably to the dictates of our own consciences, we may sing canticles of praise to the Lord in a country no longer foreign or unfriendly to us, but in a country now become our own and taking us into her protection. Catholics are no longer second-class citizens. This is no longer Carol, this is me. Carol, Catholics are no longer second-class citizens. They now have a country to call their own, even if they share it with non-Catholics. For Catholics at the time, including Carol, this was an improved situation, even if imperfect. And I'll just end with, with that, that for the Catholics of the founding generation led by Carroll, in that context, this was an improved situation and there was much to give thanks for. Uh, not just because they now had the freedom to worship, but because they saw that the principles of the founding were largely consistent with their own principles as Catholics. Thank you. This is a chapter from my forthcoming book on the American founding. And um, you know, the overall argument of the book is that um, there are substantial continuities with the Thomistic natural law tradition and the American founding and constitutionalism. And there's various pieces of this argument. Um, in, this, in this chapter, um, the, the book focuses in on um, the question of sovereignty. Um, and it contrasts the, the voluntarist understanding of sovereignty of the Hobbist and Rousseauian traditions with the founders' view of sovereignty. Um, and then it argues that Brownson and his Thomistic metaphysics provides us with an account of sovereignty that better makes sense of the founders' understanding um, than the voluntarist tra tradition. So to sort of help motivate this, um, you know, consider James Madison reported in his notes 
uh, on the federal convention that his friend and fellow delegate, James Wilson, quote, was never really fond of oaths, considering them as left-handed security only, end quote. Good governments, Wilson argued during one of the debates that summer, did not really need oaths to impose obligation or compel obedience. Um, and he thought bad governments ought not to be supported. But despite Wilson's objections, the convention delegates adopted the language that became Article VI of the Constitution, requiring members of Congress, all executive and judicial officers, state and federal, and all elected members of state legislatures to take an oath or state an affirmation of fidelity to the United States Constitution. By congressional statute, the specific language of the oath is, quote, to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, end quote. And to, quote, bear true faith and allegiance to it. This oath or affirmation has become highly visible in public ceremonies um, of, of installing public officials and signals how the Constitution functions as a kind of higher law in the American polity. But to pick up on Wilson's objection, why should the Constitution be considered authoritative and demand our loyalty? The answer to this question is tightly bound up with how we think about popular sovereignty. And it's necessarily connected to the question of the proper approach to constitutional interpretation. What does it mean for political actors and judges to exercise authority under the Constitution? Um, the American colonists reaffirmed the rule of law over the rule of will. Whether it had been theorized by partisans of absolute monarchy, like Filmer, um, or partisans of absolutist democracy, like Rousseau. To understand the founders' perspective on popular sovereignty under the rule of law, it, it's helpful to, to draw it out in contrast with Rousseau's democratic sovereign, and the chapter does that, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but to really understand that, you have to go back further. Um, the development of the modern idea of sovereignty, we argue, um, is rooted in the Christian theological concepts of absolute and ordained power of God, and the parallel concepts of antecedent and consequent will of God. Um, and so the chapter takes a look at this, um, this dialectic between absolute and ordained power um, in classical theology. So Augustine and Aquinas uh, distinguished between God's absolute and ordained power. Um, you know, there's the line uh, from the Gospels that, um, you know, Christ could turn these, um, could, could raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. There's various, he could call down a bunch of angels now. There's things that he could do that are within his power, but doesn't actually happen. So there's some sort of distinction between what's actually happening and what could happen. And so the Augustinian Thomistic tradition tried to wrestle with this and make sense of it. Um, and the really short version of it is that God's absolute power consists ultimately in his freedom to create or not create. And in my view, that is a fairly strong form of divine libertarianism. But it's not a radical libertarianism because God's absolute power extends only to logical possibilities in the here and now, not the actual unmaking and remaking of the created order. Having chosen to create the world, God in fact did create, he binds himself to an order willed. God's ordained power is manifest in the order of nature and the providential governance of things toward their proper ends. Aquinas talks about this in De Potentia Dei, De Potentia Dei, the Zuma, various places. The story of God's power and therefore sovereignty in subsequent medieval theology and philosophy is rather involved, more than we can talk about here, 
recounted well in the work of scholars like Francis Oakley, Michael Allen Gillespie, and others. But very, a really, really short version of it is thinkers like Occam and Scotus um, operationalized God's absolute power, which is to say God's, act, God's absolute power became something that was an always active capacity to, to bring about some effect. Occam was worried about protecting the divine freedom. Um, he, he worried that Aristotelian essences in the world as uh, sort of stable natures um, would constrict the divine freedom, um, could, would, would, would somehow hamper God's power to make and unmake. So he argued liberty has to be indifferent with regard to its object, and indeed went so far as to suggest God could even command rational beings to hate him. Um, in other words, sovereignty became detached from goodness. And later Thomists like um, Bellarmine Suarez would say that this was fundamentally, um, it, it, was it would be incompatible with God's goodness to, to issue such a command. So there's a real division um, between the nominalist voluntarist tradition and the Thomistic tradition on how to think about sovereignty. Well, you can actually trace this, the, the sort of concept of sovereignty into the absolutist politics of the post-Reformation kings, including the Stuart kings in England. James I took over this theological distinction and applied it to the civil sovereign. The sovereign had the absolute power to make and unmake the realm and stood above the rule of law and the common good. To quote from James I, quote, God hath power to create or destroy, make or unmake at his pleasure to give life or sin, death, to judge all and to be judged nor uh, accountable and accountable to none, to raise low things, to make high things low at his pleasure, and to God are both soul and body due. And the like power have kings. They make and unmake their subjects. They have the power of raising and casting down of life and death. Judges over all their subjects in all cases, accountable to none but God only. And one could read Hobbes, I think somewhat plausibly, as providing a radical defense for the claims of James, um, that, that view of sovereignty. Um, that's the beating heart of historical Hobbism. By Hobbism, I mean a, a set of doctrines that were thought to be Hobbes' true teachings that you can find in the subsequent decades in the literature of thinking about Hobbes. Now, there's, a, there's another possibility about what Hobbes really meant that you could go read about another book um, that was mentioned earlier. But as a historical matter, Hobbism, it was clearly a voluntarist doctrine. Okay, so how does this, what difference does it make for Rousseau? Well, um, all of this is going on in the background, and um, the general will in Rousseau really takes this idea of absolute power and, and kind of puts it in, into the hands of the demos. As Patrick Riley has shown in his book, The General Will Before Rousseau, the theological distinction of general in particular, which paralleled the distinction between absolute and ordained, provided that backdrop for Rousseau's notion of general will, was itself also indebted to Pascal's analogy between the unity of the church and the unity of the political body. So does the unity that's property of the church befit the unity of the, of the political body? Will, Rousseau really liked that idea. And so he tried to come up with, with an account of how that could be the case. The social compact gener that is generated by individual persons incorporating into a public person, the sovereign. Um, and the, men, the members that constitute it taken collectively are the people. And they exercise sovereignty 
when they do, it's nothing less than exercise of the general will. Um, and when it acts, it's an act of sovereignty. Um, and practically speaking, Rousseau provides a little, very little guidance for distinguishing the general will from what the, what the democratic sovereign wills in fact. Sometimes he has sort of this mystical idea that the general will is always right, but effectively it collapses into the de facto judgment of the sovereign. Um, so to sum up, the Stuart kings saw themselves as lieutenants of God on earth, endowed with authority reflected, that it reflected the divine nature, and therefore absolute power of the civil polity. Hobbes' work could be read as providing a philosophical edifice for that, the Stuartian claims of absolute sovereignty. And Rousseau's achievement was to transfer the godlike absolute power from kings to the demos, and to theorize absolutist sovereignty in democratic terms. Um, so the general will was a secularized, a democratized version of the Jacobean absolutist sovereign. Um, or you might say the Rousseauian popular sovereignty was the Hobbes mortal god baptized in the waters of democracy. Okay, um, so what does all this mean for the founders? Well, um, I don't think that's their view. <laughs> I think they rejected that view. Uh, now some people think they accepted that view. I think they're wrong. Um, well, why do I think that? Well, um, uh, I think because they affirmed a thick and robust classical natural law theory. Um, and this is evident in various aspects of founding political thought, but including how they talk about sovereignty. Um, so the, the paper then looks at the, um, it looks at some of the constitutional debates at the convention and, and Publius to find evidence of this. Um, and, um, and then the paper does look at a few contemporary constitutional theorists that make claims about how to think about sovereignty at the founding. People like Bruce Ackerman, Keith Whittington, um, they both affirm a version of voluntarism. Um, Ackerman has this idea of constitutional moments and there's sort of these acts of will of the people and then that kind of makes the constitution to mean something. Um, and there's various problems with this with his theory. For example, the New Deal is a constitutional moment, but there wasn't a constitutional amendment to ratify it. Um, how can the popular sovereign be present um, just through day-to-day -day electoral politics if it's not amending the Constitution is a question someone like Whittington raises, which I think I think fairly so. But more fundamentally, Ackerman doesn't give any coherent account about what relationship duty and obligation have to popular will. Um, Whittington's originalist view, I think, is closer to the mark. He's more sympathetic to the natural law tradition. But he ultimately says that um, the normative value of the Constitution, why we ought to be loyal to it, is that it secures our p potential sovereignty in the future. We could, you know, the fact that we, ha that, um, that, we, uh, that we have to lay down in this bed means that we could, that, um, you know, we ought to be able to make or unmake it. Okay. Um, but I think that ultimately fails to persuade. Um, if no standard of justice, external to the people's will, conditions and limits that will, then historical accident and collective will will become the only standards of the just and the good. And if that were the case, it isn't, it isn't clear to me why the whole people should retain potential sovereignty over constitutional forms if they came to believe that the one or the few should take it. We still don't know yet why the whole people's will has any normative value. Um, there's a number of theories we talk about. I don't know if I have time to really get into them, but two minutes. Okay, talk about Randy Barnett, 
and some other people that also, I think, have some good ideas, but go off the rails. So what about, oh, that was, I guess that was a lot before we get to Brownson. Only two minutes for Brownson. Okay. Um, so Brownson. Um, you may know about, uh, quite a bit about him already, but you know he, was, he came a generation after the revolution. He had a strict Calvinist upbringing in Vermont. He came to reject Calvinism because he could not intellectually reconcile predestination with God's justice. But then he went through a period of religious unease. He became a universalist. And he denied Christian revelation. And he eventually became a Unitarian pastor and the transcendentalist movement. And then he um, finally came to the Catholic Church um, by 1844. He had come to affirm the perennial philosophy of the classical and Thomistic tradition. And his analysis that the chapter takes inspiration from is in his great work, The American Republic. Um, and this book, Brownson um, sort of gives an assessment in light of a classical metaphysic. His aim um, was to try to rethink the American constitutional project in light of the perennial philosophy. And the key idea, idea I think, is this idea of existential dependence. He says, man is a dependent being and neither does nor can suffice for himself. It was a metaphysical claim about God's causal relation to man. He lives not in himself, but lives and moves and has his being in God. Of course, that's a familiar Pauline point, but it is in, in principle a metaphysical claim, knowable and demonstrable by unaided reason. And the paper following scholars like Joseph Owens, Etienne Gilson, restates Thomas's existentialist argument um, the distinction between essence and existence as foundational to a, to a, a, a well thought out metaphysic. Um, and I won't go through all that, but if we want to talk about it, we can. Um, but if that account is true, the upshot for political theory is apparent. It would follow the state of nature theories in the Hobbes and Rousseauian mold, in which persons are conceived as atomized sovereign individuals, are false because they deny man's essential and existential dependence. It also implies the falsity of theories that hold absolute sovereignty rests in the people collectively. As Brownson would say, quote, in their independent might and right, as some zealous Democrats explain it. For the same reason, both the radical individualists and the radical socialists make the same fundamental error. They conflate the creature with the creator because they both reject any transcendent source of meaning and existence, Brownson believes. And I think this gets closer to what the founders thought, that that the people are sovereigns as secondary causes. And, and, and Brownson explicitly talks about sovereignty in the secondary sense. Now, you might think, well, goodness, this idea of sovereignty. Didn't Jacques Maritain tell us that we should jettison the concept of sovereignty? Well, we might hear about this a little bit. But he did. He worried about this. Um, he thought that the, the concept of sovereignty had just been so um, sullied by the Hobbist Rousseauian ideas that um, conceived of the social compact as a kind of physical transfer of material power, the sovereigns you know, separate and above the people. But I think Brownson's account gives us a way of, of talking about sovereignty that doesn't succumb to those problems. Um, a sound way of thinking about it. And after all, Maritain talked about a lot, a lot about autonomy despite its corrupt usages. So I think that the concept of sovereignty could be rescued. And I think Brownson gives us a way that we can think about um, that. So. I was thinking, kind of connecting uh, these papers that we've moved from the founding and then got to the middle of the 19th century 
and we're jumping ahead to the middle of the 20th century here with Maritan, but we'll come back to Brownson, so that'll actually uh, tie things together pretty well. So I'm going to jump straight into some just kind of a general summary of Maritan. So in the 50s, he gives these more kind of ad hoc lectures on uh, his just his uh, perceptions of America as a Frenchman coming here, having been welcomed to America uh, during the war. So I'm going to look at those impressions, look at uh, how uh, later people have responded to them, and then, and then kind of advance second somebody's claim about balancing Maritan and Brownson. Maritan begins with two elements of his first impression of America. First, despite the gigantically developed industrial civilization that came here from Europe, American souls were kept free from its inhuman and materialist logic. Second, the American spirit is causing this regime to pass beyond capitalism, and the people have thus vanquished the inner logic of the industrial regime considered in its first historical phase, and have, almost without knowing it, inaugurated a really new phase in modern civilization. A twin theme of seeing Americans as having built better than they knew, and possessing pure souls that protect them from a European corruption, runs throughout Maritain's reflections. As he goes on to say, Europe provides only prehistory for Americans, for they, unlike any other people before in history, are turned toward the future rather than the past. Yet unlike the Marxists looking to the future messianic freedom of mankind, seeking to master the necessities of history, the American grounds this forward-looking attitude on a concern for freedom in the present. When European intellectuals look at America, they see only the matter and not the form. For they see only the industrial civilization they bequeath to America with its materialism, but fail to see that deeper in the American psyche are plenty of other utterly opposing trends and characteristics. As Maritain sees it, Europeans are blind to the fact that the structures and rituals of our modern civilization have a stronger hold over Europe than over America. And that generosity, goodwill, and a sense of human fellowship are more central to the American than to European peoples. In, additions, in addition, no, Americans are noteworthy for their fluidity, their ability to adjust with resilience to new problems, their concern for moral or religious conscience, delight in free discussion, fortitude in the battle to develop the arts and humanities, and thirst for not only practical, but also theoretical knowledge, as well as for spiritual life. Maritain follows these opening three chapters of unmixed praise, with three chapters on problems facing Americans. In chapter five, he outlines four vulnerabilities in the American psyche. First, Americans' sense of universal brotherhood makes them anxious to have their country loved. While this can be an admirable quality, especially among educated Americans, it can paradoxically lead them to be as anxious to hear America criticized as praised. The love of Americans for their country is not an indulgent, it is an exacting and chastising love, he writes. They cannot tolerate its defects. Americans denigrate America with ethical melancholy. Second, Americans' lack of rootedness can make them impatient with life giving them a tendency to think themselves a failure if they do not immediately get recognition from their peers. Third, this inner insecurity coupled with repressed anxiety makes them needy 
for intellectual reassurance. Fourth and finally, an additional consequence of this insecurity is the need to be in their natural environment, which explains why Americans abroad seem to feel unhappy, afraid of meeting people, shy. And as a result, they tend to become arrogant. I'm going to skip the second and third problem. The second is race. The third one is about sex. So if you want to read about sex, you'll have to buy the book yourself. Uh, so we'll skip on. Americans are really excited to read about sex usually. So we're going to skip over that. You can do that yourself. Uh, although he does have some really interesting insights, I should say, on, on uh, romance and, and, and marriage. In the second grouping, those things more deep-seated in the soul, Maritain begins with three chapters on what has become the most memorable image in the reflections, Americans as bruised souls. America is the land of hope for unfortunates, and here their tears can be transformed, thanks to her Christian vision, into a new strength and a new hope. This mission to bruise souls is evident in the symbolic smile of the American, a kind of anonymous reply of the human soul, which refuses to acknowledge itself vanquished by the pressure of the assembly line, or the big anonymous machinery of modern civilization. Americans bear within themselves a memory of the cost of leaving kith and kin, and thus bear a Christian sense of detachment that makes them live in their own lands as pilgrims. Next, Maritain turns to the theme of modesty, claiming that contrary to the stereotype, Americans' awareness of the complexity of things gives them a distrust of self-assurance and self-reliance that is liable to veer toward empiricism into a general and systematic fear of ideas. Thus, Americans tend toward too much modesty that will make it difficult for them to root their experimental or experiential way of life in the explicit philosophy they need to guide their post-capitalistic and socialistic economic system. In short, this foundation for public life, they will more and more close themselves off from the world and give themselves over to the mystic hatred of America, peddled by pseudo-spirituals who cast their enragement at themselves onto America as scapegoat. The third and final grouping opens with seven illusions that dominate American public life. First, a view of human nature that combines Rousseauian romanticism with puritanical pessimism, making Americans think, quote, if it were not for the existence of psychologists and engineers, we should say with the ancient Greeks, it were better for man never to have been born. Second, eternal success as a measure of human goodness. Three, third, mistaking a particular good such as the group, business, or national interest as the supreme good. Four, loathing of any kind of hierarchy, even with regards to knowledge. Five, the thinker as a frowning bore because, quote, thinking is so damn serious. Six, law alone and never man as demanding obedience. Seven, marriage as both the perfect fulfillment of romantic love and the pursuit of full individual self-realization for the two partners involved. To this last point is devoted a separate chapter, and in it, Maritain shows a keen appreciation for romantic love and marriage, coupled with an insistence that it is transmuted into real 
and indestructible human love. After two brief chapters on the open-mindedness of Americans compared to Europeans, that is partially negated by American love of work and distrust of leisure, American lessons in political and social philosophy is by far the longest in the book. It's divided into four sections. First, American community life is being stronger than the atomized individualism found in Europe. That's a totally opposite claim of what probably most Americans would, would say. He evidences the failure in Rome to accomplish what Saul Alinsky did in Chicago, Rules for Radicals, which helps us see some of the tensions in Maritain's allegiances in, in America as a Catholic. Uh, second, America as the best among existing democratic regimes and an Aristotelian Thomistic political society, he claims America is, that more truly fulfills its essence than any other in the world. Third, his integral humanism is a book which has, so to speak, an affinity with the American climate by anticipation. And fourth, American soil as the most fertile should the seeds of a new Christendom be sown. Finally, Maritain closes the book with a chapter entitled America is Promise that moderates the high praise of the previous chapter. In it, he claims that the European tragic sense of life must be combined with the American respect for the dignity of all persons if we are to heroically build a civilization rooted in the gospel. Turning now to critique of Maritain's depiction of America, it should be evident that whatever the ultimate value of his reflections, he does map out many avenues to explore, and we cannot do all of them in our, even with 16 minutes. I might need a couple more than that. Uh, so we'll just focus on a couple of those. Um, so first, actually probably at this conference, John Stack and Gary Glenn um, took on 25 years after these were written, their reflections, and the question is, is Maritain's America dead? Stack starts with Maritain's view that the American soul had not given in to the logic of industrial capitalism. In his view, this was no longer the case. And he pointed to the replacement of confessional religion with vague spirituality, the growth of materialism, the rapid decline of priestly vocations and attendance at mass, and the general hedonistic relativism of Americans as evidence. He has a really good passage on the Nike ads at those, at those times, if you remember those. Secondly, Stack even sees Maritain's efforts to transform the industrial system on the basis of economic humanism as part of the problem. For economic humanism looks like a proposal to replace failed Christian charity with a secular humanitarianism enforced by political coercion. As he concludes, reflections did not foresee the change from Maritain's America to the America we know today. But it can guide us toward becoming again the kind of Americans Maritain once said we were. In response, Gary Glenn agreed with Stack that Maritain was remarkably charitable and hopeful regarding American civilization and the healthiness of Christianity in America. While this did not make Maritain incredibly naive, as some people would say of Maritain about America, and Stack was correct to acknowledge that it is unfair to expect Maritain to have predicted the great degradations of the American soul, it does suggest that Maritain's analysis was not as sound as Tocqueville's. Those of you who know Gary Glenn will not be surprised where this is going. Um, 
whose correct predictions gave his analysis such credibility. Further, Glenn agrees with Stack that Maritain failed to see how dangerous it is to embolden a secular regime to play the part of the church, given that this amounts to a replacement of Christian charity with bureaucratic redistributivism. Some 10 years ago, Jude Doherty echoed Stack and Glenn's conclusions. It's a long quote from him. Today, 65 years later, any reflective person is apt to notice the difference between Maritans America and that of the present. A largely uneducated public has instantiated an anti-Christian socialist regime at the federal level. The public influence of Christianity has been muted. The once strong Catholic institutions of higher education are barely distinguishable from their state-supported counterparts. Religion has become so identified with almsgiving that Sunday worship seems at time merely a backdrop for yet another charitable appeal. Whereas Glenn pointed to Tocqueville, Doherty pointed to Hayek, who was on the Committee of Social Thought at the same time as Maritain. Hayek, just a few years before Maritain, saw in Road to Serfdom the ruinous economic effects that the nation's drift towards socialism would likely bring. Not only that, he could show from the experience of Europe that the egalitarian impulse inevitably leads to coercion and a loss of personal freedom. If America does not soon heed Benedict XVI's call to return to a sense of the sacred, Maritain's America will perhaps be incapable of revitalization. Just a few years before Doherty, Peter L.P. Simpson provided a European's defense of Maritain's America. Focusing on the bruised soul theme and reflections, Simpson argued that America is still a sign of hope. I'm going to skip some of this. That he, you know, basically says that it is more true in America than anywhere else. That someone has a chance, and that's why immigrants are, are coming here. And the democratic secular faith is still something we should believe in. While I share both Simpson's and Claire's view that there is much salvable in the America of today. Simpson unwittingly slips into the very language that is at the root of the problem, that of self-creation rather than of self-discovery. In his articulation of the American promise, he says, in America, the human capacity to create one's own self through one's own self-determination is at its freest. And I think this is part of the problem, that, that very way of thinking. So I'm just going to skip to the end. I'm not, I don't end up saying anything original here. I'm just ending up uh, seconding uh, Douglas Olivant's contention, going back to Brownson, that uh, we can connect Maritain's optimism with Brownson's pessimism at the end of his life. If you've read his reflections on liberalism in the church at the end of Brownson's life, after reflections on, after he uh, uh, so praised America in the mid-1860s. So I'll end with this quote. The American experiment continues to require correction, and perhaps both Athens and Rome provide resources that correct the tendencies of liberalism, perhaps by correcting each other. Brownson points to the very real dangers of a secular state, or one motivated by a particular interpretation of Christianity. Conversely, Maritain implicitly warns against too close a connection between the things of Christ and the things of Caesar. The secular project appears to have been largely successful in America. And in fact, religion as a whole remains more vibrant here than in the Ameri European regimes, in which the role of religion was at least nominally acknowledged. 
And the aforementioned undeniable increase in human dignity is an achievement that cannot be dismissed, reinforcing Maritain's interpretation. But on the other hand, this healthy tension shows fraying around the edges, particularly with regard to key cultural issues. In these areas of conflict, Brownson must be admitted to have a point. As we attempt to moderate vice with virtue and promote liberty while tempering license, there may be little choice but to continue to navigate the waters between these poles. I do not think the issue is whether or not Ameritans America is alive or dead, but whether it tells the whole truth about our soul. And while Brownson may have been too pessimistic in his latter years, he does help us re remind us that when the Christian wayfarer expects nothing from the city of man, he can be pleasantly surprised when the secular cultivates even a modicum of virtue upon which grace can build. Thank you. In 1895, Leo XIII wrote an apostolic letter to the bishops of the United States called La Cinque Oceani, noting that America seems destined for greater things. He said that the church had important contributions to make to that destiny. The Pope appreciated that American law placed no impediments on the flourishing of the church, but he warned, nevertheless, that it would be very erroneous to draw the conclusion that in America is to be sought the type uh, of the most desirable status of the church, or that it would be universally lawful or expedient for the state and church to be, as in America, dissevered and divorced. American laws were better than in France or many other places in Europe at the time, but they were not in conformity with the norms articulated by Leo's 1885 encyclical, Immortale Dei. How could the accomplishments of the American regime of religious liberty, which Leo admitted contributed to the church's flourishing, be reconciled with the fact that American arrangements still fell short of the best Leo thought most desirable? This was the central concern of John Courtney Murray's career. This paper seeks to examine four analytical tools Murray applied to the problem of church and state relations over the course of his career. First, he critiqued the 19th century distinction between ideal thesis and acceptable hypothesis drawn by Bishop Felix Dupanlu, showing its inadequacies. Second, he distinguished between unchanging teachings that had to be applied to uh, changing historical circumstances. Third, he asserted that popes and later the Second Vatican Council made developments of the church's doctrine in response to the signs of the times. Fourth, Murray differentiated between a classicist approach to these matters that neglected concrete circumstances and what he called historical consciousness. Using these concepts, we will consider what unchanging principles, if any, Murray thought could be disentangled from the history of magisterial teachings on church and state. So I'm going to skip over uh, first section on the case of Spain, just which sets the background of debates over these issues. Um, you can always, if you, you know, critics of the American, holding up the American regime of religious liberty as an ideal can appeal to the Concordat with Franco Spain as a, instanti a very close instantiation of the uh, norms of immortality. And that's in the background of this. And then I'm going to just um, skip the section on thesis and hypothesis, because I think that's the least interesting of these four uh, categories. 
So we'll move right on then to unchanging principles, uh, variable circumstances, and signs of the times. In order to explain variations in which what the church has taught about relations between herself and the state, Murray most frequently appealed to the need to apply unchanging principles to diverse circumstances. The teachings proper to one historical era might not apply to another. Moreover, relations between church and state suitable in one country might not be suitable in another country at the same time because of differences in history and culture. Murray constantly warned against making generalizations from specific times and places without reference to historical context. This, he claimed, was what Leo XIII was warning against in Longinqua Oceani. And this is Murray. The error was on the part of those who wish to make the American constitutional situation in which the church does not enjoy the favor of the laws and the patronage of the public power as the premise for a generalization to a universal principle. These men, I say, wish to take the legal experience of the church in America as the premise upon which to erect a definition of an ideal of legal experience that would be everywhere valid, everywhere permissible, everywhere advantageous. Now, there were two problems uh, with this approach then. First, the generalization from the American experience to all times and all places, making it universal. Second, and more perniciously, the raising of legal arrangements that were good in one specific historical context to the level of moral and theological truth. Murray thought traditionalist advocates of the Spanish model were committing the same mistake by turning it into a universal ideal abstracted from historical context. Both were wrong. Murray repeatedly and consistently contended that distinctive American arrangements should be acceptable for America and distinctive Spanish arrangements should be acceptable for Spain. Church-state relations were substantially different in each country, but the differences reflected their respective historical and religious circumstances. What was theoretically best might, must be reconciled with what was practically possible, and the range of the practically possible could vary considerably. Principles must be applied in different historical eras and at different places within the same historical era, as in the case of mid-20th century Spain and America. But this approach focused only on changing, uh, or on, on historical changes. Later in his career, Murray would say that the application of principles could vary according to changing human self-understanding. Changes in human self-understanding were themselves a historical circumstance the magisterium must grapple with. In calling the Second Vatican Council, Pope John XXIII said the church needed to respond to the signs of the times. The introductory section of the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes, was framed by the observation that reading the signs of the times was necessary for the church to understand the ever-changing modern world. The Declaration on Religious Liberty Dignitatis Humanae likewise concluded that the growing desire for religious liberty was one of the signs of the times. Murray invoked this concept to explain the church's discernment of how to respond to changing historical circumstances. Leo XIII, um, in his reading, read the signs of the time correctly. His predecessors, uh, not so much. Um, and then these changes, or he thought there were two signs of times in the post-war era, namely 
growing consciousness of human dignity and growing consciousness of the integration of the human family in a global community. These changes in human self-understanding became the basis of doctrinal developments at the Second Vatican Council. Uh, Murray, very much so now development of doctrine. Murray admired John Henry Newman's groundbreaking work on the development of uh, Christian doctrine. And speaking of the Council of Nicaea's development of doctrine to explain the nature of Christ, Murray said, the question is, what is legitimate development? What is organic growth in the understanding of the original deposit of faith? What is warranted extension of the primitive discipline of the church? And what, on the other hand, is accretion, additive increment, adulteration of the deposit, distortion of true Christian discipline? The question is, what are the valid dynamisms of development and what are the forces of distortion? The question is, what are the criteria by which to judge between healthy and morbid development, between true growth and rank excrescence? The question is, what is archaism and what is futurism? Perhaps, above all, the question is, what are the limits of development and growth? The limits that must be reached on peril of archaistic stuntedness and the limits that must, be, must not be transgressed on peril of futuristic decadence. He never articulated methodological uh, answers to these questions. Um, he applied these categories to debates, uh, that is the categories of uh, archaism and futurism, to debates over religious liberty at the Second Vatican Council, uh, explicitly comparing the archaism of Eusebius of Caesarea, who opposed the Nicene Creed and remained an Arian, to the traditionalism of those who believed Leo XIII's teaching on church-state relations and toleration was the final magisterial statement on the subject. In this context, Murray said, archaism consists in the rejection on principle of the more recent synthesis or systematization, and in the effort to adhere or return to the synthesis or systematization of a prior age, which is judged to be simple and more pure. Moreover, at the root of the fallacy is the rejection of the notion that Christian understanding of the affirmations of faith can and indeed must grow, the same time that the sense of the affirmations remains uh, unaltered. So then he tr I trace out uh, different stages in the development of doctrine related to um, religious toleration and then religious liberty culminating in uh, the Second Vatican Council. These doctrinal de developments of uh, Leo XIII, Pius XII, and John XXIII culminated in an explicit development of the doctrine of religious liberty by teaching that the recognition uh, of one religion must not be prejudicial or need not be prejudicial to the equal rights of all citizens. After the council, Murray said that religious freedom was now a matter of doctrine, not of historical circumstances. Uh, now, classicism versus historical consciousness. For Murray, the Second Vatican Council was fundamentally concerned with the development of doctrine on the basis of historical consciousness. He adopted a contrast formulated by uh, Bernard Lonergan, uh, SJ, between classicism and historical consciousness, applying it to changes in uh, doctrine on church and state. Um, Historical consciousness is concerned with the way we subjectively understand what is either objectively or circumstantially true. 
Murray, and I'm skipping a quote here in the interest of time, um, Murray said, uh, the church's ability to appropriate the emerging historical consciousness of the late 19th and early 20th centuries was derailed by the modernist movement, delaying it until the Second Vatican Council. Lack of historical consciousness led traditionalists to think that what was only circumstantially true was objectively true. The council therefore had to address both new historical circumstances and the consciousness of postmodern man with a newly developed doctrine. For Murray, doctrine could be developed by way of rearticulation uh, on the basis of changes in subjective consciousness, in this case, uh, historical consciousness of those to whom it is addressed. His invocation of historical consciousness has often been treated as a matter for celebration, often without critical analysis. What if changes in consciousness cause people to reject doctrine that is founded in divine revelation? Murray never addressed this possibility. He died before the concept of historical consciousness was abused to justify the kind of futurism he condemned. It became a rhetorical bludgeon to use against traditional doctrine that became unpopular, leading some to go so far as to deny the possibility of intrinsic evil. So in conclusion, did Murray believe that there were any timeless principles of Catholic political theology um, taught by the magisterium? Again and again, he emphasized that it is difficult to distinguish enduring principles from the contingent circumstances in which they are formulated. Sometimes the rhetorical requirements of controversy serve to skew formulations of principle in such a way that they must be rebalanced later. He said this was true of the uh, writings of St. Robert Bellarmine and Leo XIII. It was uh, the same with specifics of church-state relations. Medieval Christendom, Catholic absolutism, and the Catholic nation-state may have been providentially ordained, but they were still ultimately contingent arrangements. Nevertheless, it is possible to glean examples from Murray's writings of unchangeable teachings. First, the relationship between church and state has a permanent structure, oscillating between dualism and monism. Dualism recognizes the independence of the church on account of the primacy of the spiritual. Monism is the tendency of temporal rulers, whether medieval emperors, royal absolutists, or modern totalitarians, to subordinate the spiritual to the political. Second, Murray asserted that the church's sovereignty over spiritual matters means it may legitimately reach into the temporal life of Christian society there authoritatively to touch the spiritual issues arising in society. In this sense, Catholic doctrine is fixed. The whole political theology of the church revolves around this essential, permanent, unchanging right and endowment of the church. It is an endowment transcendent to circumstances, independent of historical contexts. That's Murray. Um, it's stri striking because it's an unusual example of him saying something uh, like that so strongly. The specification of the church's right to address spiritual matters in the temporal realm, however, is dependent on the circumstances of the time. For example, papal power to depose temporal rulers was contingent upon the circumstances of the Middle Ages, namely due to the relative immaturity of its political institutions. This was affirmed explicitly, uh, Murray said, by Gaudium et Spes, which said that certain rights of the church can be merely historic, 
therefore contingently legitimate, but not exigencies of doctrine, although uh, Gaudium et Spes did not specify which rights those might be. Third, like Orestes Brownson, Murray argued that the political authority is incompetent to judge truth in matters of religion, but it is not strictly incompetent in all religious matters. Since the early modern period, temporal rulers have exercised cura religionis, care of religion for their people as a part of their care for the common good. This was a pretext for absolute rulers to interfere in the life of the church. Today, Murray said this responsibility is exercised by promoting religious freedom for all members of society. Fourth, Murray said that Leo XIII's three contributions to the development of doctrine, the existence of the two societies, the freedom of the church, and the freedom of the people in civil society contained the absolute, and this is Murray, the absolute and final truth in that mode of generality which alone can make a statement of the truth absolute and final, independent of historical contingencies, valid for the year 53 as for the year 1953. Murray's methods and enduring principles were never set out systematically but he was at least clear about his task. And this is Murray. The theological task is to trace the stages in the growth of the tradition as it makes its way through history. The task is to discern the elements of the tradition that are embedded in some historically conditioned synthesis that, as a synthesis, has become archaistic. The further task is to discern the growing end of the tradition, it is normally indicated by the new question that is taking shape under the impact of the historical movement of events and ideas. There remains the problem of synthesis, of a synthesis that will be at once new and also traditional. Murray's method supported a narrative culminating in the reconciliation of Anglo-American liberty with the developed doctrine of the church. It is doubtful that he ultimately believed the regime of religious liberty was to last forever, but it seemed to him the best practically possible policy for the foreseeable future. Achieving this reconciliation or synthesis was the theological task he set himself. Thank you.